about Christian action. The scripture passage for today is a familiar one. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you, O mortal, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? Amen. You can have a seat. I want to ask you to consider a courtroom with God as the plaintiff and hear how Eugene Peterson retells this scripture passage in Micah chapter 6. First, the bailiff speaks. Listen now, listen to God. Take your stand in court. If you have a complaint, tell the mountains. Make your case to the hills. And now, mountains, hear God's case. Listen, jury, earth. For I am bringing charges against my people. I am building a case against Israel. Then God speaks. And God says, Dear people, how have I done you wrong? Have I burdened you, worn you out? Answer. I delivered you from a bad life in Egypt. I paid a good price to get you out of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam to boot. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, tried to pull. And how Balaam, son of Beor, turned the tables on him. Remember all those stories about Shatim and Gilgal. Keep all God's salvation stories fresh and present. And then Israel speaks and says, How can I stand up before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed with thousands of rams, with buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel my sin? But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. This is a story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. I was recently reminded that it's unwise for a pastor to identify strongly with a prophet when preaching because then your sermon just sounds well preachy. Instead, put yourself in the place of Israel when reading the scripture, when listening to the scripture. And I get that. It's an important point. It's right because a good sermon comes from a convicted heart. So I'm going to start this sermon with fair warning. When I read this passage in Micah, I identify with God. That could be trouble for you and me both. (laughs) The Lord takes the stand as the plaintiff and says, Hello, do you remember me? In case you've forgotten, let me list all the things I've done for you. Now, if that doesn't sound like a parent of a teenager, I don't know what does. A familiar litany in my house might sound like this. Hey, did I do something to offend you? Like when I carried you around for nine months? birthed you, nursed you, or changed your diapers and made sure that you went to preschool, 
Maybe it was when I fed you healthy food. Did that offend you? Or I brought you shoes for your growing feet? Was it when I made sure that you played club sports? Because I did that. Or when I checked your math homework? Is it too much to ask, oh, entitled one, whose reflection in the mirror looks an awful lot like mine? Is it too much to ask to pick up your dirty clothes, to be kind to your sister, and to acknowledge me in public? (laughs) All right, I'm a little carried away. But one way to hear God's speech in Micah's courtroom is as a version of mother guilt calling the children to remember, to remember the incredible things that have been done on your behalf. In the communion liturgy, we say that God has worked mighty acts of salvation in Jesus Christ on our behalf. And Micah's liturgy is very similar. Micah writes, the Lord has delivered us from slavery, gave us good leaders, like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. When King Balak hired Balaam to speak a curse, the curse was turned into a blessing. You know, like when Joseph said to his brothers, you intended this for harm, but God intended this for good. Curses are transformed into blessings by our God. And then when people were ready, when we were ready, God delivered us to the promised land. Israel's response is, this is too much. How do we accept this from you? How could we ever repay? With armloads of offerings, maybe? With buckets of olive oil or with our firstborn? Mike Robbins is a guy that I've recently listened to on a podcast. He calls himself an expert on appreciation. And before he was the appreciation guy giving TED Talks, he was a baseball guy. But he suddenly lost his baseball career when he tore ligaments in his pitching arm. And his basic message in his adult life became, don't miss what you have when you have it. I've learned a few things from him. Life has taught him gratitude But the gratitude that he teaches is not a simple just-do-it gratitude. There are two things that he teaches that I really like, and the first is this. The first is that appreciation is different from recognition. We confuse the two, appreciation and recognition. Recognition is based on performance. Recognition is based on results. usually comes from a boss or someone who is above us. What happens when the pitcher doesn't do well in a baseball game? They stop the game. They stop the game. The manager walks up to the mound and makes the pitcher leave. And he goes to the dugout where Mike Robbins says nobody talks to him. Recognition is you do well or you don't. And you only get recognition when you succeed. But appreciation is about being valued being cared for, even in the midst of failure. And I would tell you that we can appreciate anyone. We can appreciate anyone, anytime. Robbins says that in his years of pitching, all those times of being pulled from the mound, what would have been great when he was pulled from the mound is if just someone 
anyone sat next to him in the dugout and talked to him about anything other than what just happened. Appreciation has this, I see you, you are important to me no matter what quality to it. The second thing that Robbins teaches that I think is brilliant is a teaching on compliments. He says simply, you know what you're supposed to say when someone compliments you? Thank you. Then shut your mouth. Don't say anything else. Anything else is almost always weird or insincere. Don't argue with them. Don't try to return the compliment. Just say thank you. Thank you expresses that voice of appreciation, which is to simply say to the person who compliments you, I value you. What you have to say is important to me. When Israel says to God, it's too much. How can we repay you? Should we repay you with armloads of offerings, buckets of olive oil, or our firstborn child? Those are all stupid things to say. (laughs) Those are weird and insincere, given the history that Israel has with God. There are no sin offerings. There are no sacrifices required. Thank you would be perfect. And not a groveling kind of thank you. Because I suspect that God is not as into recognition as you and I are. Given the choice, I think God would pick appreciation over recognition. Because God desires relationship to value and to be valued. Now, it's probably not an either-or with God, appreciation or recognition, and there's certainly much to recognize about the mighty acts of salvation that we all benefit from. But when we overemphasize recognition with God, and we do that, we put God in a place of doing things for us, doing things to please us, instead of putting God in the place of being right with us, which is where I believe the God of Scripture wants to be right with you, and right with me. I want you to know that I think there are two different ways to express appreciation, to to genuinely express the value that you feel in a relationship, to express appreciation in the world. There are two ways to say that, and one way to say that is I want to be with you, and the other way to say that is I want to be like you. But let's talk about I want to be with you first. When we love another person, we want to be with them. I received news. You all already saw the picture for I want to be like you, right? You got that? (laughs) Okay. First, let's talk about I want to be with you. (laughs) When we want to be with another, when we love another person, we want to be with them. I I received um, some news yesterday that an older friend of mine died and my first thought and the thought that I continued to have as I woke up in the middle of the night was man I'm gonna miss him I'm really gonna miss him because he was my friend and I want to be with my friend that's the nature of friendship Micah refers to this idea and calls it walking with walking with walking with has this I'm in it with you mentality, where you go, I will go. It's not a I'm going to meet you there, but it is an I'll go with you. 
And our pace is not going to be running, it's not going to be speeding, but it's going to be walking. In the neighborhood that I live in, we have a walking path, and um, it's a mile loop around our neighborhood. And there's an older gentleman that lives in our neighborhood that walks seven or eight laps a day. He's out there for a good chunk of the morning. And the great thing about his exercise regimen, I think, is that he has a lot of different companions. He's out there on the trail, and I'll see him with one neighbor for a while, and then I'll spot him again, and he's with somebody different later, and then the next day I'll see him with somebody else, just walking together. One of the overriding metaphors of the Bible is a journey or a path. It doesn't much matter where you turn. In the biblical canon, you can find someone who is on their way. Jesus' earliest followers were, in fact, known as people of the way. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus' initial invitation to the disciples wasn't, believe me, but it was, come, come and follow me, walk with me. When Micah writes, walk humbly with your God, Old Testament professor Daniel Simonson says that this means life is a pilgrimage with God as our constant companion. So we walk humbly with this companion, which is to say we walk wisely, we walk carefully, we walk thinking what is God up to, where does God want to go or like to do. I got tickled this week imagining Jesus in my week doing the things that I do. I guess it's the inverse of the what would Jesus do game. Jesus asking what does Dinah do. Imagining Jesus in my shoes, imagining Jesus in my places. And you know what? He's excited about some of it, but I can also come up with some recent scenes where he's bored out of his mind. It appears to me that I may need to walk humbly with Jesus right out of a few places. (laughs) Which leads me to the second way that we genuinely value another is to implement that idea that I want to be like you. I want to care about the things that you care about. I want to be like you. The meaning of the name Micah, of the prophet Micah, is who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? That's the question that the prophet poses. Wanting to be like Yahweh, Micah tells me that there are two things to strive for. The first is to love mercy because God is merciful. God abounds in steadfast love. When we love mercy, it's more than just being kind. It's more than just incidentally acting merciful. When we love mercy, it means that we lean that way. It means that mercy is our default. It means that I so admire being merciful that I delight in opportunities to express it. All right, let's do my therapy. Some people don't deserve mercy. (laughs) Am I right? There are some real jerks out there. They're unkind to me. They're unkind to people I love. But Micah teaches me that loving mercy is not about the other person. Loving mercy is about me. I'm seeking to be like Yahweh who is merciful at some really surprising times. 
The Hebrew word used in the text is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Hesed expresses faithfulness, loyalty, kindness, a loyal kindness. Hesed is not a feeling in the scripture. Hesed is most, usually, most commonly used to describe an action, an action that's expressed in a covenant relationship, an action by a stronger partner to a weaker member. So it's respect, it's benevolence, it's generosity. Loving mercy is a quality of the spiritually mature. Anne Frank was a girl whose spiritual age was much older than her chronological age, and she wrote this in her diary. How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. My acts of kindness don't depend on how I'm treated or who I encounter. Loving mercy is in me. Loving mercy is on me. And then the second quality that mirrors God's image, the second way that I can be like God is to do justice. Pastor Joyce Holiday teaches that doing justice is tough for us. It's tough in this day. It's tough in our culture because ours is a culture that emphasizes individuality and self-sufficiency. And doing justice requires a significant move for us to consider the common good higher than our own personal good. Doing justice is a step beyond charity. It's a step beyond giving out of my abundance. It's buying into interdependence. Interdependence over independence. In New York City in 1935, City legend has it that Mayor LaGuardia turned up at a night court in the city that served the poorest of the city. He dismissed the judge that was there, and he took over the bench. A woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. So she told the mayor that her daughter's husband had left their home, that her daughter was sick, that she was not married, and that her two grandchildren were starving. However, the shopkeeper, the baker from whom the bread was stolen, refused to drop the charges. It's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor, he said. She's got to be punished to teach other people a lesson. LaGuardia turned to the woman and said, A $10 fine. And as he pronounced this sentence, he reached into his pocket and he said, Here is the $10 fine. I now remit it, and furthermore, I fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Bailiff, collect the fines. Collect the fines and give it to the defendant. $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered woman who had sto stolen a loaf of bread to feed her grandchildren. Doing justice is a call to interdependence. The Apostle Paul knew about this concept of interdependence. When he talked about this idea, he called it the body of Christ. How do you and I do justice? Well, we give ourselves to a cause, and we open ourselves up to a people. 
Anthropologist Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever does. On the night before Jesus gave himself up for us, he ate with a small group of people. He called them to continue to come together, to continue to come together, to remember the story, and to renew the covenant. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God.